in a series called Meant for More, and uh, it's just been wonderful to journey together the book of Ephesians as a community. And we do that for a couple of different reasons, as we said before. Um, we do that uh, because when we journey uh, one book of the Bible together, there's something about having all of our eyes focused and fixed on the same vision. We're all, we're all headed towards one thing, and that's an important uh, aspect of why we're in Ephesians, and also because when we go through a book of the Bible together, verse by verse, it allows you to hear more of what's in here and less of, of my opinions on things, and that's always a good thing as well. So we're glad that you've joined us this morning. If you're coming in in the middle of our series, we're in Ephesians 4 today, and we're right at the uh, the tail end of Ephesians 4 will be in Ephesians 4, um, 32 th through chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And it's uh, a couple of different verses that we could easily skip over um, if, we, if we chose to skim over them really quickly. But I wanted to really dig in uh, this morning and talk about forgiveness and what forgiveness means. Now, it's in no way, shape, or form an exhaustive talk on the, the intricacies of forgiveness. I think, you know, I was thinking this week, and I was just thinking to myself, gosh, we could spend a whole series on forgiveness and be uh, talking about the topic of forgiveness for months and even years. And um, actually, I'm going to tell you a story about a woman who's devoted her life to it. Um, I'm going to tell you the story of, of, of someone you may not know. Her name is Ava Kor, and Ava Kor was born in Romania to a Jewish family around the time of World War II. And what was unique about Ava was that she uh, was a twin. And so as the Nazis were storming through Europe, the um, the cores were rounded up and put into a ghetto, and her uh, family then was put in a cattle car, and they were shipped like thousands, um, indeed millions, of other people to Auschwitz, the concentration camp in Poland. And when they arrived at Auschwitz-Birkenau, uh, the people were herded out of the cattle cars and set on the railroad platform. And Ava and her family uh, were no different. They walked out to the platform. And there were SS officers and, and dogs who were barking. And it was a loud scene. And, and as one SS officer approached the core family, he said to the family, he asked the family, twins? Twins, and Ava's mother replied, is that a good thing? Is that a good thing? And the SS officer replied, yes. And so Ava Kor's mother said, yes, they're twins. Ava and her sister Miriam were 10 years old. And so the SS officer took them away from their parents and separated them off and took them into... Dr. Joseph Mengele, or otherwise known as the Angel of Death, into his twin program, medical program. But it really wasn't a medical program if you know anything about Dr. Joseph Mengele. He performed uh, excruciating experience on 
um, I believe it was 1,300 sets of twins, many of which perished at his hands. And I want to tell you her story from her uh, perspective, and she writes this. Miriam and I were a part of a group of children who were alive for one reason only, to be used as human guinea pigs. During our time in Auschwitz, we talked very little. We starved for food and human kindness. It took every ounce of strength just to stay alive. Because we were twins, we were used in a variety of experiments. Three times a week, we'd be placed naked in a room for six to eight hours to be measured and studied. It was unbelievably demeaning. In another type of experiment, they took blood from one arm and gave us injections in the other. After one such injection, I became very ill and was taken to the hospital. Dr. Mengele came in the next day and looked at my fever chart and declared that I had only two weeks to live. For two weeks, I was between life and death, but I refused to die. If I had died, Mengele would have given Miriam a lethal injection in order to do a double autopsy. When I didn't die, he carried on experimenting with us, and as a result, Miriam's kidneys stopped growing, and they remained the size of a child's all her life. On January 27, 1945, four days before my 11th birthday, Auschwitz was liberated by the Soviet army. After nine months in refugee camps, I returned to my village in Romania to find that no one from my family had survived. She says that echoes from Auschwitz, uh, Auschwitz were a part of her life, but she didn't speak publicly about any of these um, experiences until after she saw a television program in 1978. She began sending out letters all over the world looking for people like her, looking for other sets of twins who survived like she and Miriam did, but she didn't find any. So what she decided to do was start an organization called Candles, and it's still in the United States. Candles Holocaust Museum is in Terre Haute, Indiana. And she's the president of that museum. And her thinking was that people respond better to a letter written by a president. And so she founded her own organization. And that way, she finally found other sets of twins who had survived the Holocaust. She reached out to them, and the healing started to begin. In 1993, she was invited to lecture uh, to some doctors in Boston, and she was asked if she could bring a, not a Nazi doctor with her. She says this, I thought it was a mad request until I remembered that I had uh, once been in a documentary which also featured uh, Dr. Hans Munch from Auschwitz. She, I contacted him in Germany, and, she, and he said he would meet with me for a videotaped interview to take to the conference. In July 1993, I was on my way to meet this Nazi doctor. I was so scared, but when I arrived at his home, he treated me with the utmost respect. I asked him if he'd seen the gas chambers. He said this was a nightmare he dealt with every day of his life. I was surprised that Nazis had nightmares too and asked him if he would come with me to Auschwitz to sign a document at the ruins of the gas chambers. He said he would love to do it. 
In my desperate effort to find a meaningful thank you gift for Dr. Munch, I searched the stores in my heart for many months. Then the idea of a forgiveness letter came to my mind. I knew it would be a meaningful gift, but it became a gift to myself as well because I realized I was not a hopeless, powerless victim. When I asked a friend to check my spelling, she challenged me to forgive Dr. Mengele too. At first I was adamant that I could never forgive Dr. Mengele, but then I realized I had the power now, the power to forgive. It was my right to use it, and no one could take that away. On January 27, 1995, the 50th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, I stood by the ruins of the gas chambers with my children and Dr. Munch and his children and grandchildren. Dr. Munch signed the document about the operation of the gas chambers while I read my document of forgiveness and signed it. As I did that, I felt a burden of pain was lifted from me. I was no longer in the grip of hate. I was finally free. The day I forgave the Nazis, privately I forgave my parents, whom I'd hated all my life for not having saved me from Auschwitz. Children expect their, chil uh, their parents to protect them. Mine couldn't. And then I forgave myself for hating my parents. Forgiveness is a miracle medicine. It's free. It works and has no side effects. I believe with every fiber of my being that every human being has the right to live without the pain of the past. For most people, there's a big obstacle to forgiveness because society expects revenge. It seems we need to honor our victims, but I would always wonder if my dear loved ones would want me to live with pain and anger until the end of my life. Some survivors do not want to let go of the pain. They call me a traitor and accuse me of talking in their name. I have never done this. Forgiveness is as personal as chemotherapy. I do it for myself. That's the story of Ava, Ava, um, Ava Kaur. And she still goes on and speaks hundreds of times out of the year on her, her message of forgiveness. And forgiveness is really important to Jesus. If you go back through the New Testament, you'll find that nearly two-thirds, two Jesus spoke on like two things, mainly two or three things. And the centrality of the kingdom of God was the big deal of which Jesus spoke and demonstrated. But within that, You'll find no other topic that's talked about in the New Testament or coming from Jesus' lips himself than forgiveness. Forgiveness and inclusive, inclusivity. No wonder they crucified him. When society, like Ava Kaur said, society expects revenge. This is the way of the world. Over and over again, in Scripture, Matthew 6, for if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Matthew 18, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven, 
but 77 times. Luke 6, do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Luke 23, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They, they don't know what they're doing. Luke 17, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. Forgive him. Forgiveness is really, really important to Jesus. And Paul lays that out, if you want to turn a swipe with me to Ephesians 4. At the end of Ephesians 4, Paul writes this in verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ God forgave you. Chapter 5, verse 1. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And the first thing that popped out to me as I was um, in, in this passage this week was the, that phrase. Again, here we see we've talked a lot about this phrase throughout the course of this series, in Christ. And Paul says, just as in Christ forgave you, forgive others. In Christ. What does that mean, just as in Christ forgave you? What is Paul trying to communicate to us about forgiveness when he, asks, when he tells us to forgive others just as in Christ forgave us? Well, I want us to think about for a moment what that means. Just as in Christ forgave us. What Paul is saying is that because of this, because, because we're called to forgive others just as in Christ God forgave us, he's saying that Christ's forgiveness supports our forgiveness of others. It undergirds or supports our forgiveness. When we forgive other people, we choose to forgive other people, or we choose to ask forgiveness of other people, we go with Christ's forgiveness underneath of our own. And that's a good deal. Think for a moment about the amazing way that God forgives us in Jesus. I was just caught up this week in thinking about the way. It's always the way he does things, the way Jesus does things, the way that he chooses to forgive us. is such a beautiful way, such a beautiful thing that he's done. From before time began, he planned it. He didn't take revenge when men and women fell. God planned to one day send Jesus to obliterate the offense completely. He didn't hold back any type of forgiveness like we choose to do with other people many times. He didn't ration forgiveness with us. Everything. His own son. Everything. What a beautiful way. He didn't just stop at wishing us well. He placed his favor on us as well if we claim Jesus. He didn't stop there when he gave us Jesus and Jesus died upon the cross spilling his blood. He didn't just stop there wishing us well. He grieves with us now in our calamities. And not only that, he, he stops at nothing to pursue reconciliation with his children. 
with every man, woman, and child on the planet. What a beautiful way that God has forgiven us. And not only that, he comes to our aid when we're in trouble, when we're in distress. Not a one-time deal, forgiveness, but constant, constant flows of forgiveness whenever we're in trouble. This is what Paul is saying when he, he says, just as in Christ God forgave you, He's saying that this is the unspeakable reality of being loved personally by God. But to feel the power of this, being loved personally by God, we need to understand that it's just not a general God-so-loved-the-world type of love. The love that gives us our next breath and, and rain to water the flowers and food to nourish our bodies and care and bodies that heal. You know, that sort of love. These things are amazing, but if, we, if that's all we experience of God's love, we don't really know forgiveness. Paul is speaking about the love of a father that moves Jesus to take our place in death. That's a saving love, a love that undertakes to save us completely, just as in Christ God forgave you. How did he do it? How did God do it? He did it in the most unprecedented way. He did it in the most unexpected way. He did it in a way that was unparalleled. His forgiveness in Jesus was so wholeheartedly rich that the writer of Hebrews calls the blood of Jesus, by which forgiveness comes, the blood of Jesus is utterly unique, the first and the last of its kind. Think about it this way, where Cain kills his brother Abel in the field. Cain kills his brother Abel in the field, and the scriptures say, that blood speaks to God. And the blood of Abel, scriptures say, rises from the ground and wafts into God's ears. In the blood of Abel, can you hear it crying up to God, crying revenge, blood for blood, life for life, War, retaliation. But the blood of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, speaks a better word. The blood of, of Jesus cries out mercy, compassion, freedom, one life for countless lives, peace, hope, and forgiveness. And this type of forgiveness lives in you if you claim Jesus as Lord. Your forgiveness is undergirded by his forgiveness. And that's a powerful truth. It's not just some concept, but that's the way things are actually happening right now. God's forgiveness in Jesus undergirds your forgiveness as you forgive others. And you go to them and ask forgiveness of them. 
Also in this passage, forgiveness gives itself for others. Forgiveness gives itself for others. Chapter 5, verse 2, And live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Here's where it gets tricky with us human creatures. This is where it gets a little bit sticky. This is where it gets a little bit tricky for us to grab hold of forgiveness because we don't know instinctively how to forgive others. It's not our, our default to do so. Or many times we're not even aware that we need to ask it of others. Or even what that would look like. Because the truth is, is that you and I, we like to hold on to offenses. Without Jesus, we love to hold, especially in America. Oh, we love it. We feel like we've actually got a leg up on the competition when we're able to hold on to an offense. We think that it's a good because now we're ahead. But it's actually detrimental. It's actually killing us inside. The holding on to offenses is killing the church in America. Because if there's one thing, it's, it's not being critical of others outside of the church. It's not, it's not even the religious spirit in the church in 21st century America that's killing the church in America. It's holding on to offenses and destroying itself from the inside. We like to hold on to offenses. And this is what makes forgiveness so difficult, isn't it? Let's look at it this way. Some people are easier for us to forgive than others. And sometimes it's easier to ask for forgiveness than other times. And we go about our days rationing forgiveness. Because we feel the reality of the truth that for some folks, we simply do not have the capacity in and of ourselves to forgive them. So we ration a little here, a little forgiveness here, and we ration a little bit of forgiveness over here as well. You know, a little, a little forgiveness here for the person who just cut me off on the freeway. Let that one slide. You know, a lot of forgiveness here for my dog who ran away once, but he finally came back because he's such a faithful friend. A lot of forgiveness for that puppy. But God, are, are you saying you, you want me to forgive even the difficult people too? The big offenses? Are you, are you telling me that I'm to forgive my childhood abuser fully without holding on to any anger whatsoever in my heart? Are you saying you want me to forgive my, my spouse for the umpteenth time and not hold that wrong against them in any other passive-aggressive way? Wait, 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 God, are you, are you actually saying I'm to forgive my child for cleaning out my bank account and saying those awful, hateful words to me? 
Jesus said, are you trying to tell me that I'm supposed to forgive my parents for the way that they rejected and neglected me? Completely? Utterly? And Jesus replies, 77. Jesus says, yep. Even them. Even them. You see, asking forgiveness and receiving forgiveness requires us to get low. And that's what we don't like about it. Just as in Christ God, as he gave himself up, forgiveness is going to require us to get low. What do I mean? It requires Christ's humility in us, and I don't mean thinking in our heads, well, I'm just doing them a favor. Sure, I'll forgive you. You're going to need to get low. Or when we're called to ask forgiveness, we think it can wait till tomorrow, or I'll just say I'm sorry and move on. Or I'll say I'm sorry and add the addendum of an excuse. We like that one. When really what we think by adding an excuse to the apology is that we deserve some type of understanding from the other person for why it's okay for me to still hold on to my rights while at the same time asking forgiveness. You're going to need to get low. No, forgiveness is, is all the way. All the way. Author John Eldridge puts it this way. Listen carefully. Forgiveness is a choice. It's not a feeling. Don't try and feel forgiving. It's an act of the will. Feelings take time to heal after the choice of forgiveness is made. We allow God to bring the hurt up from our past. For if your forgiveness doesn't visit the emotional core of your life, it will be incomplete. We acknowledge that it hurt, that it mattered, and we choose to extend forgiveness to our father or mother or those who have hurt us. This is not saying it didn't really matter. It's not saying I probably deserve part of it anyway. Forgiveness says it was wrong, very wrong. It mattered, it hurt me deeply, and I release you. I give you to God. In order for forgiveness to work, we have to truly empty the thing in order for us to receive what we're there to receive. That's what Eldridge is saying. The work of forgiveness is incomplete if it doesn't touch us at our emotional core. We're going to have to get low if we choose to forgive. And basically, what I mean here is this, is that forgiveness is such a powerful gift. It's a powerful gift that comes straight from the Father's heart to people. It's so powerful that Jesus spends, like we said, two-thirds of his ministry talking about it and speaking directly to it and demonstrating it. When we finally give ourselves up, when we finally forgive the person or people who have hurt us, we find a few things. We find that we finally get free from the offense. There's a freedom that comes, a burden that's lifted when we experience forgiveness. 
We need to hear ourselves say, I forgive you. There's something powerful, right, in speaking it. Not just feeling it inside, but saying it. There's a lot of wisdom in that thing of like, if you can't, if you can't say it, it owns you type of deal. In anything, the same is true about offense and forgiveness and hurt. If you can't speak it, it owns you. It's got you. We need to hear ourselves say it. Think of all the things that you trade in as you forgive, as you choose to forgive others, or as you go and, and you choose to ask for forgiveness from others. Think about all the things that you trade in. You trade in judgment. You trade in resentment, bitterness, depression, anxiety. Nothing. Nothing rids our hearts faster of bitterness than forgiveness. Forgiveness is, is the spade that digs up the bitter root in our hearts. Forgiveness is the spade. And this week, I, I felt like, as a small group together, we journeyed um, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And we just read over the scripture together. It's in Matthew 21. And I wanted to close with this this morning. It's in Matthew 21. And this week at small group, we, we sort of got at looking, looking at the triumphal entry from like all of the different perspectives that are happening as Jesus walks and then rides into town. It's just such a scene. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them. Bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth, Nazareth in Galilee. Let's tack this one on. Jesus entered the temple. This is right after. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling Doves, it's written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Gentle riding on a donkey, overturning tables in the temple. This is our king, and I got this picture. 
this week, and we journeyed this together as a small group, looking at how many different perspectives, and then I felt like the Lord was speaking to me in that, like, how do you, Evan, how, where are you in the crowd? Where, where are you in this crowd? If forgiveness is, if, if Jesus is on the road to forgiveness, where are you? Where is your heart postured before forgiveness? During my time at the Ohio State University, I was in a history course on the civil rights movement. And the first question that the instructor, the professor asked us as we came in to the, to the class was, he, sh- he put up on a big screen like this all these pictures of the riots in Birmingham. You know, pictures of in, in the early 60s of, of African Americans being hosed down with fire hoses and German shepherds. Do you remember the Time magazine photograph of the German shepherd tearing that boy apart? And do you remember all of the photos of the white spectators holding up signs? Masses of white people holding up signs. And do you remember Bull Connor, the town sheriff, applauding and cheering on what was happening? And my professor said, where? he in essence asked us the same question. He said, where are you in the crowd? Are you coming... How many of you are coming to the aid of of African Americans and standing up for what's right and and acting out injustice? And every hand in in a predominantly white room shoots up, doesn't it? And he looked at us and said, percentages say you're wrong. Put your hand down. Put your hand down. You're right there. With the sign in your hand, maybe, maybe not. But where are you as Jesus enters the town? As Jesus rides through the east gate? Messiah is supposed to come through the east gate in old town Jerusalem. That's why the Ottoman Muslim Turks had it brick by brick boarded up so that Messiah can't come. Little do they know he's already come. He already passed through that way. And when he rode in, he didn't come in on some war horse. He didn't even come in on a donkey. He came in on the fall of a donkey. Now to Roman soldiers who are watching this spectacle happen, this can be nothing more than comical. A grown man on a baby donkey even if he's riding side saddle, his feet, even if he's 5'2", his feet are dragging on the ground. And this is a king, the Romans say, to overthrow who? Caesar? Comical at best. Revolutionary, not a chance. Not, that guy is not a threat really not a threat to the Roman Empire. From the Romans' perspective, do we, do we look at forgiveness and posture our hearts that way? Comical even sometimes? I don't need that. 
A king, really? You want me to forgive, really? Huh? Or maybe, maybe we're in the crowd. Maybe we're a curious bystander, the one who's asking, who is this? You know, generally wondering. Many in our society are like this, generally wondering. They, they want just a clean shot at Jesus. They don't care much for his followers, but they just want a good look at Jesus. Who is this? Is it really true? Forgiveness is really offered to somebody like me? Really? Who, who is this? Or are we with the throngs who are shouting, Hosanna, save! Save! Laying branches down, cloaks down, spreading before him. Some of them, even the same people who will shout the next week, crucify him! String him up! Are we this way with forgiveness? Are we with the religious? The religious leaders in another passage, they say, shut him up, Jesus. Shut your followers up. Heresy. You see what's going on here? Criticizing the whole event. Standing by cool and collected and watching. Content to watch. Judging. Do we position ourselves that way before forgiveness? Where are you in the crowd? And I just felt like the Holy Spirit asking me that this week. Evan, where are you in the crowd? Where, where is your heart positioned before forgiveness? Who, who is this? Who is Jesus? And at the end of the day, and at the end of all things, we'll find that we can trust him, that he is who he says he is, and that when we go to forgive, it's, that forgiveness is undergirded by his forgiveness, that he, because he went there first. Why don't you join me in standing? We, we just want to make space 